Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... This episode of the Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Picture Book Summit. Do you dream of creating picture books that'll change a child's life? I sure hope so. Learn how to find your voice at Picture Book Summit, a world-class online conference for picture book authors and illustrators. Join them on Saturday, October 3rd, 2020, for keynotes from their award-winning best-selling lineup, including author-illustrator Sophie Blackall, author Lisa Klein-Ransom, and author-illustrator Peter H. Reynolds. Don't delay. Deadline to register is September 30th. Go to picturebooksummit.com slash winner. That's the goal. That's the goal. Um, I don't know if you read Heather Cax Richardson, but I read her every morning and, um, She's a historian that I stumbled across as I was writing this new book, which is a really hard book to write right now, which is The Lost Cause of the Confederacy and the Rise of White Supremacy, so, <laughs> which is a YA book I'm writing, and it's a follow-up to Kent State, and its t- working title is Charlottesville. But in order to write that book, I've had to do this deep dive into history, and I've discovered Heather Rock- Cox Richardson doing that, and we have been reading a lot of and watching on YouTube a lot of her academic seminars and stuff and I really love how she has given context to this time by talking about the 1850s and the 1850s when things were so horribly divisive and democracy seemed to be at stake and in 1860 um, Lincoln won the election the South seceded and we had a civil war and that's what they're aiming toward right now basically This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 629. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner if you want to support the show. You can also leave a review of the show using your podcatcher of choice. That helps a ton. Today I'm joined by Deborah Wiles. Deborah is known for a great number of outstanding middle grade novels, but her YA debut is one that I believe will fully stop you in your tracks. Kent State is a novel in verse, or perhaps more accurately, a novel in voices, about the events on May 4, 1970, which led to members of the Ohio National Guard opening fire into a crowd of Kent State University demonstrators, killing four and wounding nine Kent State students. 
It's a book about events that took place over 50 years ago, but it's also inseparably a story about what is going on right now. It's a novel that examines the importance of social justice and what it means to be an American. It's a retelling that will move you. I was so moved by my conversation with Deborah, and only now, only now as I'm preparing to post this episode for you, that I realize there was a malfunction in my audio recording software, which causes her audio and my audio to overlap at points. I've done my very, very best to clean up our conversation but it meant having to snip bits and pieces of the conversation away. But those bits and pieces are ones that I will hold to be just mine and just hers. And what I share with you now, I hope moves you, I hope connects with you, I hope that you enjoy every moment that I'm about to share. Please welcome my guest, Deborah Wiles, author of Kent State. My name is Deborah Wiles, she, her, hers, and I am the world's best baking powder biscuit maker, the world's best zinnia grower, the world's worst piano player, but I love the piano and I play it anyway. And that's how I start usually introducing myself in front of a sea of young readers often, and they'll laugh. And I will also say that for the past 20 years, I've also written books for young readers and their adults and everything from picture books like Freedom Summer and the new book, Night Walk to the Sea, to middle grade novels like Love Ruby Lavender and Each Little Bird That Sings and the other Aurora County books, um, documentary novels for upper elementary and middle schoolers like my 60s trilogy of books about growing up in the 60s and to my first young adult novel, told in multiple voices about a very divisive time in our nation's history, Kent State. Um, I was recently on a virtual book tour for Kent State when my editor, David Levithan, introduced me by saying, if you read Debbie's body of work, you see that what she really writes about is the importance of social justice and what it means to be an American and who gets to tell that story. So that's kind of an introduction to my work. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and have been here for 16 years and moved here from Frederick, Maryland, outside of D.C., where I raised a family for 25 years. And I was born in Mobile, Alabama, while my dad was stationed there in the Air Force, and I spent all my growing up summers in Mississippi. I didn't realize you were from, that you had <laughs> spent time in Frederick. I'm here in Ellicott City. So not, um, not a far hop at all from Frederick. No, Frederick is an old stomping grounds, and that's why I was so thrilled to go to the Gaithersburg Book Festival and be among my people, because I lived in Gaithersburg for a while, too. My kids were born at the Shady Grove Hospital, and um, yeah, and D.C. has been a huge part of my life, that whole D.C. area. In fact, I lived in P.G. County. Was it Love Ruby Lavender or the Aurora County All-Stars? It might have been, was one of our nominees in our state book award, the Black Eyed Susan Book Award, um, of which I know you have had lots of recognition in state book awards in your tenure as an author. Um, but I think only recently did I start to, oh, they've been a to notice work, really. um, publicists saying like, and this author's book has appeared on eight 
state book awards. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's cool to hear how those award, those state book awards are valued. As a librarian who promotes our state book award, I love that it unites us. It unites all the students across our state that we're all reading this thing together and voting on this thing together. But but need to hear the way that oh, it allows yeah. your books to take root yeah. across our nation as well. That's really important to us as writers, at least to me as this writer. Um, Ruby Lavender was on 32 State Book Awards, which was so amazing. And that book is 20 years old this coming year and still is out there garnering readers and having those readers who are now booksellers and teachers and parents who will say to me or have before this pandemic struck us when I was in schools and conferences and whatever, will bring me their copy from third grade. And now they're adults. And, and, you know, this is because of state lists, really, because the state lists, you know, this isn't a book that won major award notice, but it's a book that was majorly awarded in schools with young readers who would pick it up, or actually they're, they're librarians and they're teachers who would use it in classrooms and read it out loud. And Ruby, Each Little Bird That Sings, All Stars, Freedom Summer, um, they've all been on multiple state book award lists. And, and it's not about winning the state book award. It's about having your book on the list where children have access to it. That's what's important. To hear you speak of it that way really makes me feel all sorts of electricity running through my body. That's so fun. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I want to validate that work that you do because it's, for us, very valuable, too. It's one of the last bastions of how books find their way into young readers' hands, actually, because of the way that our our um, book publishing business has gone and the way that virtual technology, everything has, has shifted the way that we handle and acquire books. So the book award lists are just so valuable in the way of keeping literacy going as well. So you are debuting with this YA novel, debuting for a a crowd of readers that has grown up with you. Um, I found Kent State (laughs) to be not only affecting, but particularly moving as an audio book. It's a book that um, in leafing through it, um, has the layout of a of a novel in verse, but upon reading the story, you realize it's a novel in voices, and um, how powerful it is to hear uh, not only those voices as you read them, and they're um, de- they're 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 denoted one from another by using different font styles, um, but then to hear the audiobook and to hear to hear the characters talking over top of one another and jumping in and trying to wrestle with a history that, as you say in your author's note, the experience of someone who who went through, who was on campus, who experienced this um, in Ohio, even if their details differ from somebody else's details, their, their experience is no less valid. And so for you to capture that essence in these many voices in this book, I, I found to be so moving. It was outstanding, Deborah. I'd love to know more about uh, your approach to writing this book and, and why even pick up this topic to begin with for you. Well, that's so, these are all good things to hear as well. So thank you. Um, as I was writing the 60s trilogy books, which take place in, well, Countdown is 62, Revolution is 64. 
and covers the civil rights movement. And 69 is Anthem, which is a road trip across the U.S. and um, what it was like to be in uh, America in 1969. And as I researched Anthem, I kept bumping up against Kent State. And I remembered being 16 years old. It was three days before my 17th birthday when the National Guard opened fire on unarmed students at Kent State and killed four of them and wounded nine more and effectively ended the 60s. And I was a teenager in Charleston, South Carolina, where my dad was stationed, and he was going to Vietnam a lot. He was a pilot <clears throat> in the Air Force, and he was flying C-141s mm. over to Vietnam with supplies, and he was flying them back with bodies so many bodies and it was just such a turbulent time in the united states and we weren't allowed to talk about it at the dinner table because that was the tone my parents set there and i could tell it was really difficult for my dad and my mom but we talked about it in school all the time and we were worried and we were scared and we were angry and we we, we were confused and I just remember all those feelings bubbling up and burbling over. And then every time I would come across Kent State in my research, I'd say, Ugh, I won't go there because it's too hard. It's too awful. It was too sad. It was too tragic. And then as I was finishing, but I kept, um, I organized a lot of my work on Pinterest. And so I'm a Debbie Wiles at Pinterest and I just have board after board of all the books I'm working on. It's very messy, but it's all resource stuff. So I'd started a resource board for Kent State just because I kept running up against it. And as I finished Anthem, I said to David Levithan, who's my editor, I just said, there's no way I can't write about Kent State next. And by that time, I had just seen that I needed to. I just felt pulled to. And partly, and this is the case with every book I write, it's because I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand what had really happened. And so... That led me to visiting Kent State several times. That led me to going to the May 4th um, annual observance there, which was so moving. And I write about in the uh, author's note to this book, what that's like to have your candlelight and walk around in the dark and then stand vigil until the next day. And um, I began to uncover a story in the archive. And the story in the archive was so compelling and it created such a mountain of work there at the Kent State University Special Collections that um, I, I thought, I don't even know how to tell this story. So I called David and the two of us talked it through <clears throat> and we started talking about structures and I've always been big on structures and even starting with say Ruby Lavender and those Aurora County books all have letters and recipes and newspaper clippings and all kinds of stuff that helps tell the story inside those books. And the 60s trilogy books are documentary novels. So they have scrapbook sections that have primary source material in them, songs and um, lyrics and newspaper actual clippings and photographs, all kinds of primary source documentation, along with the novel. And so for this, I didn't want to do that. I, I, I already knew that this one moment was so um, horrific that it didn't need a lot of primary source stuff stuck inside, but what it needed was to be as quietly elegant and eloquent as possible. But how do I take all this material? And so David and I bounced it around and we both came up with the, um, the, the fact that we had just read Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. 
and had both loved it so much and had loved the sense of those disembodied voices in that cemetery talking to one another. And that something sparked for me when he talked about how much he had also loved it. And I could feel some kind of an emotional movement to that. And then David said, what about the idea of collective memory? You have so many voices there that you don't know where to, where to focus. What about if you told the truth from every angle that you can? And I looked at all this stuff. I had amassed and it was just overwhelmingly the voices were like, I remember sitting at a desk in the special collections room and picking up a letter and it was from a townsperson to the local newspaper. And this was years after Kent State. This was like maybe a 10th anniversary. That was and 10 this letter- years. The audio overlaps here. But what Deborah says is, and this letter said, and there were more than one of them, it said, you should have killed more of them. And I stood up and the librarian there saw me standing up and just standing there. And she said, Ken, are you okay? And I said, no. And another day sitting there in the archive, and I came across students who were being racially profiled, Black students, who had their like mugshots racially profiled by the police. And the Kent police and the university police, the Akron police, the, they were profiling these Black students who were going into high schools to try and do activism work with Black students so that they would be ready when it came time to vote and they could vote. And there was a, um, there was a uh, organization on campus at Kent called Black United Students. And there was so much information about them that I had never known and never understood. And I thought, here's a story as well. And there's the townspeople's story and there's the four students story. And then there's the activists on campus story. There's faculty story. There's the history of what's going on. There's the governor who wants to be reelected more than he wants to create safety and care about first amendment rights. There's a whole story about first amendment rights. And so David and I talked this out and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to use their voices and let them talk. And so once I sat down, they all just began talking to me. And then it was a, uh, a challenge to try and allow them all their voices and allow yeah. them to disagree. Hey there, book nerds. You know what's even better than hearing bookmakers share stories of how their ideas became the stories you love? Having those stories in your home, your classroom, your library, or your life to be enjoyed over and over. Bookshop.org allows you to purchase your favorite books from the show and support local bookstores while doing it. I even maintain lists of all the books shared each season, so it's easy to find what you're looking for. Visit MatthewCWinner.com and click on Shop, or use the link in the show notes to find your next favorite story. And you mentioned the um, the audio. The audio book yes. blows me over. I really think the audio book should be a companion to the printed book because they're a different experience totally. And when that book was recorded for audio, it was done with a cast that I helped select. Paul Gagne at Scholastic was so gracious in allowing me to listen to voices with him. 
and we selected these six different voices and David DeVries, who does the um, opening for us. And um, they did it in one day in a studio together around a table, all of them reading this in one day. And that's what gives you that immediacy and that interaction. And that day, both Paul and Lori Benton at Scholastic wrote me and sent me pictures and were in tears saying how powerful this story is read out loud. And that's the moment I knew that we had Reader's Theater, we had a play, we had uh, ways to use this in a classroom where different students could take on different roles within that classroom if the book is being taught there. We had ways to get the book out into the world that are more than traditional book selling. And that was my goal, was to get this book into as many young hands as possible. Because as you can see in the book, I want you to, I want you to be an activist in your own right with whatever way feels like your way. May I, and Deborah I continues, and I want you to vote. And I want you to have a say in your democracy, and I want you to change the world. And then I ask her if I can read aloud her it, book to it, her. There's so many pages I could hop to to show, Please. to give a sense of that collective memory that you're talking about. I want to point out, though, that, that this book never names a speaker. It never says, this is... This is boy age whatever talking here or adult age whatever it's it's all from listening to the voice whether you are reading it or you are listening as you said in that companion um to the audiobook but i'm gonna i'm gonna start early on um where where an adult voice says you all are nothing but commie hippie pinkos your parents were ashamed of you they were not we were patriots We had the right to assemble, the right to protest. Our parents taught us this. They were auto workers, meat cutters, pipe fitters, truck drivers, teachers, nurses, stay-at-home moms. They taught us to love our country, too. You never showed anything but contempt for our country. You hate our country. Our country hated us. Everyone calm down. We each hold some of the truth. We were not communists. We were not outside agitators. They were students. We belonged. It was our college, our future, but it was our town. You ruined it. Coming into Kent with your fake IDs, getting drunk in our bars, breaking windows, trespassing, setting fires in the street because you didn't want to support our president and his good faith attempts to end the war. Let me, Adam, calm down. Stop. And you go from there into a dispute about when the curfew was established and whether or not it was retroactive. And there are moments that are revealed brilliantly, Deborah, through this structure that I don't know could have been as a, I'll say it this way, as a reader, I don't know how else you could have communicated this in this effective way. It's much like there's graphic novels that I read where I'm like, there's no other way to tell this story other than through a graphic novel format. Here, when you have your different voices disputing the establishment of, of the curfew in this in, in just this one scene, and and who holds what facts and what facts are true, and really, like you say in your note, they were all true. It was true for the person that was there. It wasn't that someone was ignorant and another person was not it was that 
We were living, uh-huh. or they were living in different parts of the town and affected differently by what was going on. And therefore, their truths were both true and different. This is. is right. This is very true. And they might have not have been true for you. This is what's going on with us right now. You know, this is what's happening in our country right now. But back to, first of all, to Kent State was, you're right, I didn't name anybody. And I did not want to take the voice of one of the four students who were killed or any of them who were injured or wounded because I, I'm not them, and some of them are still living, some of the wounded. But what I really wanted to do was to give you a sense of the flow of what I had discovered in trying to uncover the truth about what happened at Kent State, which we will never know, because there is so much argument over who, you know, why is the National Guard there, and why did they fire, and why did they have bullets in their gun, and was there a, a, an outside shooter, an outside agitator? Uh, who burned down the ROTC building on Friday night, um, who was looting in the town on Saturday or Friday night. Um, I guess it was Saturday night, the ROTC building, all these questions. Um, and there's no agreement. There's no, there's been investigation after investigation and there's no agreement on this. And just like it is today on many, many issues. Um, however, if I were to put them on opposite sides of the page and then right. use different typefaces and different point sizes, you would know immediately who these voices were. And so you should, I, if, if, I'm, if I've done my work well, you should be able to tell them that way. That's how I turned in the manuscript was all those different typefaces and different sides of the page so that you would know immediately who's talking in caps, who's talking in script, mm-hmm. who's talking yeah. in italic. We talk about curfew, but what really sticks in my mind is is in a later scene when when the guard is opening fire they're given the command to open fire and you have these different voices saying like it's okay they're just rubber bullets or they're just blanks or they're this and i'm like oh my word this this would have been what people were going through in this moment and i it it even now talking about it it made my heart race it made me scared uh it made me feel it, like thinking about um, protests that we have seen recently on uh, recently in past decade, past year, um, where um, authority is responding in a certain way and you don't know how dangerous it is for those folks there. I mean, uh, being attacked, period, is dangerous enough. But to know that um, lethal force is being used and that some didn't even realize that it was lethal force, that anyone would come on and do that to children on a campus, it's just, it's it's wild. I'm Clearly, I'm experiencing this story in so many ways for the first time as I'm reading it this way, because it was just... If it was mentioned in high school when I learned about whatever American U.S. history, it was just, you know, a mention. And then it was moved on. The context, the, the sitting and listening to voices was not a thing that happened. And, and in that way, you, you are giving us a gift of being able to honor and hear these voices and to sit with the chaos of so many voices saying so many different truths. Well, thank you. That's really good to hear. That's my, <clears throat> sorry, that's my my goal. That's my aim is to let you know that there are so many ways to tell history, to investigate history, to understand story. And one of the reasons the 60s trilogy has those scrapbooks in it is because as I worked with young people in schools, I could see that it was not only hard for them to see themselves as part of a story, it was hard for them to understand that at the same time 
um, voters are trying to get registered in Mississippi, black voters are being registered during Freedom Summer or not being registered, um, the Beatles are coming to the United States for the first time. So I wanted them to see, hear, taste, touch, and smell history. And with Kent State, we're doing it through voices, the voices. And you know, the, the line about they didn't have, we didn't think they had real bullets was an actual line. It was actual uh, in an oral history. There were so many oral histories, thanks to Sandy Hallam and some others at Kent State and the people at the um, visitor center there. We have so many oral histories that have, and many of them are anonymous. Um, well, not many, but some. The National Guard has a couple, and they're anonymous too. But a lot of those selected lines that that pop out at you are lines that were actually said in oral histories, or um, in hearings um, that people began to try and reconstruct what happened. We didn't think they had real bullets, whereas the Black United students, most of them didn't even show up on May fourth before the shooting happened because they were told to stay away. And when I did interviews in Kent, there was even one who said, student who said, um, well, always black, but a former student. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is like before coffee. <laughs> anyway, who said, um, you know, we were told not to go to yeah. the campus because, you know, you see a soldier standing there with a gun and you don't think it's loaded, get real. You know, so there was this whole dichotomy of different ways of looking at what was going on, whereas these white students were there at this this protest, this massive protest against the Vietnam War, which turned into mostly a protest against, well, also a protest against having the uh, National Guard on their campus. You know, guard off campus became the huge cry at, at one point because they couldn't get them to leave. Um, but they, they, they were just blithely throwing stones and sticks and screaming at the guard and not for a moment thinking they would be injured. And not much has changed as, you know, what happens today. You look at the protests that are going on today yeah. and you look at how people are, are pushing back. This book has a lot to do with First Amendment rights, your right to protest, your right to stand up for and speak your mind, and your right to petition and for redress. And that's what's going on right now across this country is that Americans are out there doing that. And so part of what Kent State was, so what I wanted to show you with Kent State, and I had no idea, of course, what was going to be happening in 2020. But part of what I wanted to write about was to bring Kent State up to the present. I wanted to be able to go into the past with the First Amendment and look at the Boston Massacre, to look at Wounded Knee, to look at slavery. And I wanted to go through to racial profiling, mass incarceration, and what's going on today. I wanted you to see that we have this history in this country of violating First Amendment rights and of not listening to our citizens. So just right. like in Kent State's pages, they're not listening to one another. They're yelling at one another. Again, structurally, I love that it feels like every time you revisit this book, in which I mentioned I've read it three times um, each time I revisited it it felt like the characters saying the voices saying Aww. you're back please stay stay to the end and hear us and think about where your name is here on the page I think about mm -hmm. um, with the second or third read or in those cases those were listens after I had read um, I think about how long we wait to hear the voice of the black 
United Students. That one of your characters says, without us, the students, the university, you wouldn't have a town. And a voice comes in, back up. You are forgetting about us as usual. Look at us. And that whole line there that talks about the seven shot at Ohio State um, Mm -hmm. just before, as you were saying, that was informing that communication to those members of Black United students um, to not go to Kent, to not go to this protest, um, that, that, that you have a voice saying. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was key. That was key. They could have been killed too. See, that was key because they had, yeah, they had had, had a hard history that they had learned it's it's a very complicated um i think it was 11 days after kent state two students were killed at jackson state in in jackson mississippi in a historically black college and um it was a little it was a different scenario but and and before that in 1968 there had been killings at orangeburg state um eight students had been killed and it was just you know we look at the way that uh, I, in fact, I say somewhere in Kent State, understand your history, because as a country, our government has misused its power and its privilege, and it, it's done that to get what those in power want. And what is that? More power. So we need to take the power as citizens and work toward equality, justice, fairness, happiness for all. And I ask her, Deborah, how did you find these voices? Again, the way that the book reads now, it goes so fast. It doesn't surprise me that your actors would have read it all live together as a performance because it reads like that. I wonder how that was different, though, writing it. It strikes me as being a, a different a, a different beast to tackle than than a novel written in prose, a different thing to organize. I wonder what what did that look like for you? How did you find your way in, and how did you write fast enough to capture the voices? <laughs> well, one of the things that was really helpful was having four delineated days. So I had four days of history from the time on April thirtieth that Richard Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia. And also the draft um, <clears throat> lottery had gone into effect that December. And so December of 69, the draft lottery. So we begin the first section of um, that David DeVries reads, the setup for us, which is all prose. And um, May 1st begins, April 30th is Nixon's speech to the nation. And May 1st is when all this unrest begins. So I had four days, one, two, three, and May 4th. So I could divide the action or the, you know, I could have them talk about what happened in each of those days. And that gave me a frame because you need a frame that holds you into um, how to tell the story. So May 1st, here's what happened on May 1st with the rioting downtown, which was it students? Was it not students? Well, let's argue about that. Let's talk about that. Let's hear from everyone who was involved. And on uh, May 2nd, when the ROTC building was burned down, who did that and how did that happen? And that's when the National Guard showed up. So let's have the guard. Let's start here from the guard. And, um, you know, everyone was inserted at their place in the story where they enter and then they exit at some point as well. And I wanted to eulogize the four students. And so I back up from the violence on 
Friday night with the burning down of the um, National Guard building, which was a Quonset hut. It was a small wooden building scheduled for demolition, which, of course, doesn't make it right that you did that. You're un-American. You know? So the, the, these things were coming pretty fast at that point. And then I back up into Sunday morning, which was very calm. And the guard was still on campus with all of their equipment and their tanks and their weapons and their soldiers in uniform with their masks. And students had been gas or, or tear gassed the night before, and they would be again the next day. But they didn't know that then. And on Sunday morning, some of those guard soldiers were the same age as those students. Some were students at Kent State who had been called into guard duty because they had joined the National Guard to avoid the war, to avoid the draft. And here they were on the opposite side now as soldiers facing their fellow students. And many were young and others were you know, rubber plant workers, auto workers, farmers, people who had come into the guard for various other reasons and had just come off of a teamster strike that they were guarding and now here they found themselves at Kent State and they didn't want to be there. So to be able to have those students eulogized by telling you who they were and let you see them on Sunday morning and let's talk about them on Sunday morning. And so that all came from research that I did at the visitor center and in the archive and with oral histories and hearing about those four students who were killed. And then when we get into May 4th, we have a, a totally different um, voice, a totally different, I drop those voices going back and forth and I just want you in it. I want you right there. And that's why I say, insert your name here over and over again, because I want you the reader to see what it's like to be in the middle of all that chaos. And so all of that came from research and I was able to take, okay, May 4th, here we go and put it all right. in there. And I don't know, it was just the elegy then would bring you up to today, which is the part after May 4th. And then the author's note, I kept that same voice to use to show you how the story came together and the research that went into it and the, the visits to Kent. And if you want to go there, here's how to do that. And I recommend it. So, and also look at your... Deborah says, look at your democracy and look at yourself and how you can be a citizen and do your thing. And I continue our discussion of the book by talking about the section where it says, insert your name here, while kids were running around campus, while shots were being fired, was <coughs> was a, a transforming experience uh, for me. It, it felt like I was in the middle of a reenactment, in the way I say the word reenactment, in the way that every time you Good. revisit this book the the voices are reenacting the events but it just it was it, it was incredible you deliver uh one of my favorite lines of the entire book in the elegy though where one of your characters say uh says you make heroes out of oppressors and i thought that that i would like to think that in if mm. i had read this book in high school, which would have been uh, uncharacteristic of me because I didn't read in high school because I didn't have books like this or I didn't have someone telling me that books could be this. But if I had someone mm. share this book with me in high school and I came across that line, you make heroes out of oppressors, I am positive I would have written that on the cover of my history book so that I could confront that every time I opened up that history book. I felt like it was a 
a challenge to reconcile with what I knew and what I know of history. I found that line to be uh, very powerful, as I also did, if I'm flipping ahead, um, that you start your note in the back uh, by saying, it's a profound privilege to spend time with the dead. It is a daunting proposition to write about their deaths. I think I think that that not only is a note from you, but also a reminder to us that we are privileged to spend time considering the voices and the lives of these people that are lost, not only at Kent State, but but as we consider what's going on currently in the world and what has happened in history, the privilege of spending time with the dead. Yes, and I mean that very sincerely, and those are my words. They're all my words in their way, but... I really mean that it's a privilege for us to be alive today. It's a privilege for us to be standing and to have choice and to be able to spend time thinking about what it means to be an American and what it means to enact the privilege of it for all. And so, yes, we spend time thinking of those who've recently died, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Armand Aubrey. I mean, there's so many there. The names go on and on and on. And and there and right now i'm writing a book that where heather Heyer has died in charlottesville i mean there's there's a lot going on right now in this country that's polarizing us and we all think we hold kernels of the truth and yet we it's hard for us to listen to all voices and kent state was written before some of this but for all of us to be able to say listen listen to one another get at the truth think critically and act globally, but act nationally, and act in your town, and act in your councils, and act in your home, and act at your school. And, you know, all of this begins when we're young, and all of the ways that we think about who we are begins when we're young. And we have ways to be in the world that create a self that, that lives for the common good, as well as that rugged individualism that we cherish so much in America, Deborah says, there's also the concept of living and working for one another so that we lift every voice. And I continue, Deborah Wiles, Kent State is an outstanding book. And the work you do at large for our readers is exceptional. It was such a privilege to talk to you today. Well, the privilege is mine. And I appreciate so much you spending the time noticing the book lifting it up and helping it do its work in the world. Uh, that's that's the whole point. We don't do it for us. We do it for the world. We do it for readers. And then you hear me ask, as I've asked so many guests before, Deborah, I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Mm. <laughs> yes. Um What brought me to writing for children was remembering so keenly what it was like to be 10 years old. And I often say I write for 10-year-old me. Um, I think it's so important to understand that we are stories. You know, story is a superpower. It really is. And whether you dance it, sing it, write it, paint it, draw it, or tell it, you have stories to tell. All of us, everything I write is just personal narrative turned into fiction. And everything I teach when I'm in schools is personal narrative writing, that kind of a thing. So take your story and realize that it has power. 
It has power to change you. It has power to change someone else. And listening to someone's story has the power to change your life as well. And every human being is worthy of dignity and respect. And it's really hard to hate someone when you know their story. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 600 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and don't reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Become a patron and you can directly impact and help to sustain the podcast. Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that is a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.